Well, if you could turn to Acts chapter 8, as I said, we've been in the book of Acts six weeks, and we didn't get out of the first two chapters for many weeks, so some of you might be excited that we are in Acts chapter 8, but we won't be there for long. We'll go back. Don't worry. We'll go back. I'm just going to actually read you a little bit of what we covered, just briefly. I cannot go into this. When the Holy Spirit came to earth in terms of Pentecost, it, it dramatically shifted everything, and what we've been trying to do is to look at... What was it like for the people on the ground? What was it like for the people, especially as Jewish people? There's so much that we read and that we miss. And so I'll just read you a little bit of what we've covered up to now. Firstly, there was very evident all of a sudden when, at Pentecost that there was no more sacrificial system through the law. I don't think we can really understand how much that impacted them because that was their entire life. That ended, and that meant something to them. The presence of God was no longer confined to a certain time, a certain location, or through another person. And for a Hebrew person or Jewish person to understand that they have access to the presence of God changed everything, because they used to carry that into war. They used to carry it everywhere they went. And so it was it's such a dramatic shift. I don't think we can appreciate what it was like if you were on the ground then. It was also the great equalizer. You know, if you look at Acts chapter 2, it talks about young men having visions and old men having dreams and on maidservants and maidservants. And it doesn't matter of your age, your race, your sex, your social status, your language, or your location. The Spirit of God coming to earth was the equalizer, everyone the same. It says he is poured out upon all flesh, not some, all. And everyone is equalized. Everyone's the same in God's eyes. And that was a big shift for the way they understood things. It also says they shall prophesy, and we've gone over all of this. And that wasn't just talking about the gift of actually prophesying. It was to the Hebrew people, the realm of the prophets is now open to all, meaning all various gifts, because it was the prophets who used to do the healing, the miracles, the signs, the wonders, whatever it was, anything supernatural, word of knowledge, word of wisdom, is what the New Testament calls it, many different things. That realm, in a sense, has been opened, and it says they shall prophesy. And they understood that. That's why they did what they did, is because of how they understood that. And it says, in the last days they shall prophesy. And in the end of Acts chapter 2, or towards the end of the Joel 2 repeat, when it goes back to the Old Testament, he says, in the last day. And right there, friends, is the proof that it, has, it didn't just end. It didn't just stop when the apostles died. It says, in the last days, which we are in. They shall prophesy in those days, which is these days, yes? Okay, so that realm has been opened to everyone, and they understood that too. The most immediate question for them, I believe, was how are we to be the people of God without the law? How are we to be the people of God without the dictates of the law in terms of how to dress, how to eat, how to get married? Everything we do is dictated by that. If that is now fulfilled and complete in Christ, how are we to be God's people? And that's why you see a massive emphasis in the book of Acts on the Holy Spirit. Because they had to learn to be guided and had to learn to walk by the Spirit. Because that became everything to them. And it was very real. It was daily, every day, every person. It wasn't no longer being dictated to by some high priest or some earthly mediator. It was them and God. You and Him. Yes? They actually believed it was impossible to be a believer without the Holy Spirit. In fact, Christ said, don't do anything until he comes. Do nothing until he comes. Just wait. Then there was a major shift, and we hopefully get there today, about priesthood. Priesthood. As Jewish people, they 
understood priest, the Levitical priesthood. And all of a sudden, I'm not sure when it happened. The Bible doesn't, it gives us a few clues, but it doesn't really say. At some point, they realized we're all priests. We have an understanding of what that means. We can look back, yeah, priesthood of all believers, we've heard it. But for them, big shift. Big shift. We're all priests? All of us? Yeah. And so hopefully we'll look at that today and what that actually means. But let's go to Acts chapter 8. Stephen is killed, and Philip ends up in Samaria. There's a scatter, and he's preaching the word to them. Now, I think it was in 722 BC, to give you some history, there was the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel, and the Assyrians brought in all these colonists, I guess you would say, and they intermarried with the people who were there. And from those mixing of the marriage, the resulting people were the Samaritans. And so the Jewish people and the Samaritans were not friends at all. The Samaritans even built a rival temple on another mountain. So 700 years of, what's the word my dad used to say? Argy-bargy. Quite an extreme level. 700 years. And they actually only believed in the Torah. So when it came to the wisdom literature, the prophetic literature, which is most of where you find the prophetic in terms of who Jesus is, the Messiah. So, let's go look at what happened. He says, verse 4, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them, which could have instantly came into debate and argument because he would have used scriptures and things that they didn't believe in. He says, And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed, and the lame were healed, and there was great joy in the city. So they heeded what he said. Why? Because of what they saw. You see that? Because of what they saw. How many of us, there's certain things we've, in a sense, had faith for, or tried to do in God, or something over and over and over, but when the Spirit of God is involved, what was formerly impossible becomes easy. So there's incredible signs and wonders happening. Then there's a sorcerer, and he was known to them as the great power of God. That's what it says. And he too ends up saying in verse 13, Simon, that's not Simon Peter, that's Simon the sorcerer. Simon himself also believed when he was baptized in water, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs and wonders. That's what the church needs today, where the counterfeit is amazed at the authentic. Amazed. Often I see Christians get very upset with people when, when they're talking to them and they're using the Bible to debate. If they're not believers, they don't believe this. And you cannot get mad at them about that. Be real with them. Be honest with them. Jesus, the living word, the living Logos. Jesus was the word made flesh. And he says, I think it's John 10, 38. He said, if you do not believe in me, at least believe in the works. Talking about the miraculous. If there were people where the living word was standing in front of and they didn't believe in the word, he said, well, if you don't believe in me, believe in that. Well, how can we get offended when people don't believe in this? If even people didn't believe in that in Jesus' day. It requires the Holy Spirit to reveal because the minds are blinded. It requires the relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. It really, really does, friends. 
And the emphasis in the book of Acts on the Holy Spirit is not to worship and exalt the Holy Spirit. Please hear my heart. It's not that at all. It says in Acts chapter 4, Peter, filled with the Spirit, began to speak of Jesus. It's to exalt Christ and speak of Christ. Amen? But they believed impossible to be a believer without the Holy Spirit. Then it says this, and this is where we're going to break some boxes. Hopefully, that's what we've been doing. When the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that, verse 14, Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John. They were in Jerusalem. They sent them to Samaria. Who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon, not in, they were saved. It says they were saved and baptized. Holy Spirit in their heart. But he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Friends, if we went to meetings, if we started to go to conferences or whatever it was, and these things were happening, what was happening? There were healing, signs, wonders, deliverance, demons crying out, the paralyzed, the lame. Our Western mindset says, oh, the Holy Spirit, everyone's filled with the Spirit, everyone's being baptized in the Spirit. Everyone's having the Spirit of God come upon them. They were receiving the benefit of one man who hosted the Holy Spirit. One man. And with all of that going on, the apostles came and say that the Holy Spirit had fallen upon none of them. With all of that, <laughs> breaks the way we think about some stuff, yeah? All of that's going on, and that hadn't happened. And it's their main focus. This is the first apostolic trip, if you know that word. The first time the apostles travel. And the main focus is the question, do you have the Holy Spirit upon you? If you don't, we want to give him to you. Why? Because this guy, Philip, these awesome things, he's going to leave. Then what? Because you're all receiving the benefit of who he's carrying, who he's hosting. But he's going to go. You need him too, just for life, to live the Christian life, just to be married, just to live this new life without the law. You need him too. And so it was their absolute focus. They all would have understood. They all would have... A very famous text for them would have been Exodus 24, when the 70 elders of Israel went up the mountain with God. And it says, they saw feet. They saw him standing on sapphire as clear as the heavens. They said they saw God. They ate dinner with him. I mean, if you want to talk about encounter, that's way up there. Never happened before or since that people go and have dinner. It says they saw the God of Israel. They came down from that and made a golden calf. <laughs> it's nuts to me. And we all think we would never do that. Yeah. Uh, I'm not so sure. Because without the Holy Spirit, friends, within, upon, immersed, the word baptized just means immersed, immersed in the Holy Without that, there's no transformation of the heart. No matter the encounter. We need those, but we need to walk in the Spirit. That's what we spoke about last week. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? I wrote you what the apostles were doing, and I didn't even mean it in the fact that they were fishermen, but now that's just funny to me, was the saying where you say you can give a man to fish and feed him for a day, or you can teach him to fish and feed him for a lifetime. What Philip had done is the first, which we need. It broke up in a whole city. Think about 700 years of division healed. 
For me, the most dramatic text here is that it says, there was great joy, verse 8, and there was great joy in the city. That's not happiness. That's not, we're happy because the Redskins won. It's not that. Spiritual joy. I don't know how many of us, maybe very few, have experienced what it's like for a city to have joy. A whole city. To have supernatural joy. That for me, that's the fruit of the Spirit. You will know them by their fruits. So the Holy Spirit comes, it descends. He is so hosted by this one man. So he goes into a city and you see both the fruit of the Spirit and the power of the Spirit. Both. Both. Not one or the other, both. Because he was walking in the Spirit. Not every little thing you had to do, God said, do this, do this, do this. No, walking in the Spirit, and we'll get into that. So the apostles say, you need him too. You need him like he has him. Amen? Let's go to Galatians chapter 5. We need to learn to walk in the Spirit. Everything that happened to Jesus happens to us. Well, let me just say many things. Jesus was a son. Luke 3.23 says, You are my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. He comes out of the water, the dove descends upon him. You know the story. Filled with the Spirit as a son, operating in his humanity, and filled with the Spirit as a son. We've covered all this in the previous weeks. If you're visiting with us, some of today might not have context, and I apologize. Then what happens? It says, And the Spirit led Jesus into the desert to be tempted. But it says, He was filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. To do what? He fasted 40 days. So he's operating as a son. He's a son because he's saved. The Spirit comes upon him and leads him into the desert to fast, to be tempted. In other words, to put down the flesh. We understand that, right? Very simple. To put down the flesh. When he cooperates with that process, what happens? It says Luke 4.14. He returns in the power of the Spirit. So you see many people there in a sense call themselves, I'm spirit-filled, but there's no power. And so it takes a cooperation of being led by the Spirit, and what that means, how do we walk in the Spirit? How are we led by the Spirit? What does He lead us to do as a son? You're saved, but He wants to lead you. He wants you to walk in the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 will teach us. Let's go to verse 16. I say then, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. In other words, the old man. Flesh is the old man. Okay? We all get that? The flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. You there being the old man who was crucified with Christ. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. And then it does this. Verse 19 to 21, it says, these are the works of the flesh. And it, there's a whole long nasty list. And basically, if you're led by the old man, the person who was crucified, in a sense, the person you were born on the earth, and that changed when you got saved. Yeah? If you're led by the old man, this is what you will do, if you just follow that. If you're led by the Spirit, and you walk by the Spirit, the Spirit will lead you to put off the flesh, not in a legalistic way, not in a punishing way. He will lead you to put off the flesh, and what will start to flow out of your life is the fruit of the Spirit, which is, we all know, 
love, joy, peace, so forth. It'll flow out of you. It'll just flow out of you. But it's a cooperation of, you know, when the Spirit says, oh, don't do that, and you're like, oh, don't react. I want, I want to react. Just, I want to. Because she needs to understand whatever. Okay? Whatever the case may be for different things. The Spirit goes, ah! And you go, hmm, let's consider this. Right? Every time we cooperate with that, transformation starts to take place. And that voice becomes louder until, like I said last week, your very, the way you think in that area will change because you've cooperated with so many times. And now you have the mind of Christ in whatever that area is. And you think like him and you see like him because you walked in the spirit and you're putting off the flesh. Put it to you this way, very simply. Jesus said in John 6.38, I did not come down from heaven to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay? He turns to the disciples in John 20, and he says, as the Father sent me, I send you. And then he says, receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, I didn't come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I'm sending you to do the same. Not to do your will, but the will of the one who's sending you. The Holy Spirit will not empower, will not empower your desires, disciples. He will empower mine. He will only empower God's desires through you, not yours. When you put off the flesh, it will lead to freedom, and you begin to think like God thinks. Think on things above, the Bible says. Renewing of the mind, you begin to think like he thinks, and it leads to freedom so that your desires begin to match his desires. So it actually starts to happen. It's a process, but it leads to freedom. Why does it lead to freedom? The Bible says in John 16, when Jesus in his farewell discourse, he's teaching the disciples this great teaching of the Holy Spirit, his last words to them before he died. And he says, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into truth. Guiding to them was a very important word in the book of Acts because they no longer had the law to guide them. So when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into truth. What does truth do? Truth sets free. And every time you cooperate with the spirit of God, that voice inside of you, you become free. You become freer and freer and more free and more free. That's what starts to happen. And you become free. Free as you walk with him. Really free. Free not not to pursue what you want, free to pursue what he wants. Because what he wants is always better for you anyway. And as I said last week, all you're losing is the person you were not born to be, and you don't want that. That's why 2 Corinthians 3 says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, freedom. That's why you cooperate with the spirit of God. Another way to say that is, where the spirit is given lordship, there is much freedom. Not my will, but your will. I did not come from heaven to do my will, but the one who sent me. You go in the same way. And as we yield, as we yield, and as we partner with what the Spirit of God is doing in us, that's actually called walking in the Spirit. And he will put off the flesh, he will put off the old man, and the fruit of the Spirit, and the power of the Spirit will start to come out of your life. I've got a very scientific picture to show you what surrender looks like. Can you put the first one up? That's it there. 
Very, very powerful. All right. Some people require to be so exhausted to have spent all their energy to have done everything they can in the flesh until they're so burnt out, eventually they just say, all right, God, I'm done. And you know what starts to happen? He starts to lead you and you become free. You don't have to go through that process. There's another picture. It's that. It's, Lord, not my will, but yours. Not mine, but yours. And it will lead you to freedom. Real freedom. Real freedom. And God will start to speak to you differently. You start to hear him clear. If I had to title the message today, I'd call it Becoming Free and Being Effective. Because the leading of the Spirit will do those two things. It will make you freer. You will become free because truth comes. And the Spirit of truth is guiding you. It will also make you effective, particularly in the area of prayer. Now, we're going to look at that briefly. And I pray, my prayer for today is one simple thing, that it dramatically impacts your prayer life. Not in terms of how much you pray, not some external list inside. And I'm hoping today to answer some questions. As I said, they had all realized that they become priests, all of them, priests of all believers. They knew they could experience God's presence. I wrote this, the reason the New Testament believers were able to do, in a sense, what they did, what we see in the book of Acts, is they had etched in their memory, I believe it was probably on tapestries and all different places, the picture of the Levites, the Levitical priesthood, carrying what? The Ark of the Covenant. They had it etched in their memory, which was the presence of God. The greater importance was what they were carrying, not who carried it. And they understood that. The greater importance was what they were carrying, not who was carrying it. When they realized they were priests, according to this new covenant, they realized, I'm a priest. They realized what they were sanctioned to carry, which was the person of the Holy Spirit. I think they carried him in a sense, and I know that's a very metaphorical way to see it, with extreme regard, because they were Jewish. They understood, you don't just play around it's with extreme regard for what you carry. It's why in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, they could suddenly lay hands. Friends, I don't know if we even see that. Because they were doing it as priests. There was so much changed in their mind when they understood, I'm a priest? It was God's original intention in the Exodus 19. Acts chapter 8, they lay hands for the Holy Spirit as priests. In the Old Testament, when priests lay hands, it was to do what? To impart sin, leading to death. To impart the sin to a goat for the sin of the people, and it would kill that animal. That's what they used to do in the Old Testament. Jesus comes along as the new high priest, and he lays hands, and life comes. In Acts chapter 8, they get to lay hands on these people and impart God. Look at your hands. Do me a favor. Look at your hands. That's an instrument of God. That's an instrument of the Lord as a priest. You get to lay hands and impart life, not because of you, but because of what you carry. They understood some of this. 
They started to understand. That's why it was, in a sense, easier for them. It wasn't like this. Oh, God, give me faith. Help me, God. Intense. Okay, in Jesus' name. Oh, nothing happened. It wasn't that process. They were sanctioned as priests. They understood that because they were Jewish. They got to preach. You weren't allowed to just preach and stand up and preach in the Old Testament. Stand up and preach the word. No, priests. They got to do many things. They became a temple. They became a temple. They understood. Oh, priest, I have my own temple. That's cool. I'm in charge of my own temple. They became priests. What was the main function, though, of a priest? The number one function, to offer sacrifice. To offer sacrifice. Now the sacrificial system was done. So what, as a New Testament priest, are there still sacrifices required by God to be offered? Well, yeah. Well, what are they? And we'll, we'll see you next week. No. <laughs> Let me read quickly. Revelations 1, verse 5 and 6 says, From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests. Some of your Bible will say a kingdom of priests. To his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. What do kings do? They rule and govern. What do priests do? They offer sacrifice. The word offering will always be associated with that. To rule as kings, we have to first learn to minister as priests. To rule as kings, we need to learn to minister as priests. 1 Peter 2, verse 5. You also, like living stones, are being built, because temple, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. There it is. Offering. There's that word offering. Spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's the New Testament. Still spiritual sacrifice as a priest, as a holy priesthood. What kind of sacrifices? You still tracking with me? Hebrews 5, verse 5 to 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered, say offered. Okay, there's that word, sacrifice. Up what? Prayers and supplication. Prayers and supplication. And he was heard because of his reverent Submission. I don't think that's the New King James doesn't say it. Hebrews 5, verse 5 to 7. He offered up prayers and supplication, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. What is New Testament sacrifice of a priest? Prayer. Not sacrifice like we, as soon as I say sacrifice, everyone thinks I'm going to beat myself. They have this bad connotation. It's a privilege to be a priest and offer. It's really a remarkable thing. Let me be very vulnerable with you. I used to see prayer as a discipline. I do not see it like that anymore. I cannot wait to be with him. I really mean that. I cannot wait. It's not a discipline, friends. It's a relationship. If you knew how much he loved you. And we get to offer these spiritual sacrifices in the form of prayer. What was that talking about? And I know it took you through a lot. It was talking about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he say there? You'll find the very same statement 
in terms of being led by the Spirit, not my will but yours, right there. What did he say in the garden? Not as I will, Father, but as you do. Not my will be done. Nevertheless, it says in Matthew 26, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus, even in the New Testament, he's our example. He's our example of what real prayer looks like. Friends, many believers, and this is where I'm hoping to help you, we struggle with prayer. We struggle because we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray and nothing happens. Let's be honest, who's there? Who feels like, who's felt like that at the past? Okay. What did Jesus teach us with prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Many people today focus on the one statement, on earth as in heaven, on earth as in heaven. They focus on that, which is good. I understand, it's good. They want power, they want the miraculous, they want the Holy Spirit. But what was Jesus actually talking about? Will. The will. That's what he was talking about. He was actually saying this. Father in heaven, your will is always done. In heaven, your will is always done. Never questioned, always done. Let it be like that here. The result is earth starts to look like heaven. We cry for the result. He's waiting for the heart. He's waiting for the heart. On earth, not my will, but your will be done. We're going to go to quickly one more scripture. Ephesians 4, verse 22 to 24. It says this. But you have not so learned in Christ. It speaks a very similar thing to Galatians 5 about walking in the Spirit. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, there it is, freedom, and that you, you, put off concerning your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt. You see, it's the same thing. You put down the flesh. Put off the former conduct, which grows corrupt, according to the deceitful lusts. You know what I wish sometimes for young people? I wish sometimes when they're just making stupid decisions. You could list next to, because lust, you know, the lust of the, the desire of the old man. I wish you could list next to it all the consequences, all what's actually going to happen. You'll find out all of a sudden they have a great incentive to not do that thing. Because it's deceitful. Okay. That was free. So, according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit or the attitude of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which was created according to God. When was it created according to God? When you got saved in true righteousness and holiness. So, again, we see the two. Walking in the spirit is to put on the new, to listen to, to walk with the spirit, to hear his voice, to walk with him, to put off the old man. But this is where it's important. And this, is, this statement I'm hoping is to bring freedom to you. The old nature, the old man, it's a rebel in every way. It's actually dead. Bible says it's been crucified with Christ. Even that, it's rebellious. It keeps trying to come back alive. It's dead. And it keeps like, no, me. Have you ever seen Shrek? You know the donkey that jumps, pick me, pick me. That's the flesh. Me, me, I want something. I want, I see, me, me, me. Okay? That's what happens. So what happens though is this, is the way God has it in prayer, very important, is that the old nature, the old man, has no access to inheritance of the new man. None. None. 
The old man has no claims to God's inheritance. The whole inheritance of God, which is what? Everything that Jesus paid for. Healing, deliverance, freedom, financial, whatever. Everything that Jesus paid for, the whole inheritance belongs by right to the new man. By right. What often happens in our lives as Christians is the old man rises up and asserts his claim to what is only rightful inheritance of the new man. Not my will, but thy's be done. That's the new man's motto. So, simple question, and this is, I'm hoping you can see this. When we pray, am I praying for this because I want it or because God wants it? Because then your prayers start to be effective. If you take a very small gander in John chapter 4, actually in the farewell discourse, everything Jesus says on prayer is positive. And it's so vastly different from my experience that we just, we just don't even read it anymore. Can I just be honest? Ask for whatever you wish in my name and it shall be done. There's all these massive statements that very few people seem to like, well, that doesn't happen, so I don't know what that means, so let's do something else. When you ask from the new man, it's very different. And I'll explain very quickly. God delights... He delights in answering prayer, but many believers will not believe this if you told them. They won't because of their experience. Now, there are certain areas, and we're going to get real vulnerable real quick. Financial healing, that leaves a lot of people very hurt, disappointed, and so forth and so on in the church. Every time we find ourselves in prayer, we have to ask the question, from where is this coming? From where is this coming? The new man has access to everything Jesus paid for. But, but, the old man doesn't. I'm reading this because I want to be careful with it. Some people take God's will, not my will, but yours. I didn't come to do my will, but the one who sent me. On earth as in heaven. In other words, your will on earth. Some people to take God's will to be revealed to them by the lack of of answers, and then they say, well, that must be God's will because he didn't answer. But that is not how Jesus taught us. Even if what we want matches what God wants, okay? Even if what I want something, whatever it may be, even if it matches what God wants, the problem often comes in, and I, this is very personal for me, I have issues in my back, I mean, this stuff, right? I'm, I'm not him. I'm just me. But when I want what he wants and they match, that's great. Not my will but yours. But the problem is I'm still praying it from my own will because I'm actually not sure if he wants it or not. I'm not really convinced about his character, about his nature. So I can even read the Bible and say, well, this is what the Bible says, and we go to this. So I'm just going to pray, but in my heart... It's still coming in a sense from the old man. God, I really want this. I really want this. The Bible says this, but I really... But deep inside of me, deep inside, do, do I know, do I know that it's what he wants to? Because when you pray according to his will, as Jesus did, not my will but yours, everything is different. Because that's the motto, that's the, the banner of the new man, not my will but yours. 
and it becomes access to what Jesus paid for. Does that make sense? So sometimes we pray of things that, yes, well, this is what God wants, but we don't know it in us, in our heart. We don't actually know it. If we were pushed on it, we would say, I don't know, I actually don't know. And that's okay. That's not to make you, that's okay. That's okay, but it's not him. It's not his fault. It's not, it's not the lack of reveals his heart. What does that do? It makes this profoundly precious because this shows you his will. This shows you his will. And it convinces you and your mind is renewed and you walk by the Spirit and he speaks to you and it leads to freedom in truth, in truth, in truth. And sometimes it doesn't feel nice because we're led by feelings. Someone said, if I had a friend who lied to me as much as my feelings, I would never be their friend. So it's all feeling, 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 but we're led by truth because truth sets free. And as we begin to understand that voice and it begins to lead us and begins, and then we start to pray. And we start to pray of something that we think, well, this matches God's will, whatever it may be. Friends, what was inside the ark? What did they carry? What do we as priests carry? The word of God, the pot of manna, which is provision. So it's like God already won a new job. You may not believe because he hasn't answered that, that, is, that he doesn't want to give you one. Because you're like, well, but can we surrender, complete surrender, and say, not as I will, but as you will. And when that starts to transform you inside, you begin to see something very precious. As Ephesians says, 3.20, what he desires, what he wills, is far more than you can ever ask, think, or imagine. But there's a surrender first. Keep this in mind. When we surrender our own will, there are certain things we need to bear in mind. God loves you more than you love yourself. God understands you better than you understand yourself. God wants better for you than what you want. And we discover, as I said, that this is his will. It's like, and I'll end with this, it's like a child with a toy. Okay? I often see myself like that when I pray. I'm like, Lord, am I being like a little, I have a toddler. And let me tell you, when my son has a toy, goodness gracious me, he will scream and kick and bite and punch and do whatever, if, you know, and I'll just take it away. I'm not talking about parent discipline right now. But all he can see is this toy. This is what I want. The house he's standing in belongs to him because he's my son. It's his inheritance by right. All he can see is the toy. I want the toy. I want my toy. And if the brother comes near, he's going to get it too. My toy. Right? That's all he can see. If he surrenders the will, he will see how much more I want to give. When he doesn't, what does he get? Gets the toy. That's what he gets. Gets the toy. Son, I have so much more for you. Well, I want the toy. All right? Not my will, but yours be done. That is walking in the spirit. And as you walk in the spirit, you will become free. And I know there's lots of questions that might arise in your heart, and you're welcome to come and ask. You will become free, truly free, truly free, where people don't affect you.
free and you will become effective. You will become effective for yourself, for others. And it starts to reveal that outworking in your heart. You're not going to be like this tomorrow. But that outworking in your heart will actually reveal to you who you really think God is. And he's much better than you think. He has good things. He has God things. He paid a price for you. He's done everything he can to remove any impediment, every argument, every high thing that exalts itself against the majesty of Christ. He's done everything to remove that. And sometimes we get stuck on the toy. Can we stand?